this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our service at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. If you'd open your Bible this morning to Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 17, we're going to talk about what it means to behold your God, and specifically, how beholding God relates to participating in His story and on His terms. So let's look at Deuteronomy 10, 14 through 17. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts this morning to hear and be changed by the power and wisdom of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, the more I've learned about the New Testament, the more I've come to appreciate the Old Testament. It's so weird, so full of foreign things like uh, the Divine Council or the Watchers or Talking Donkeys or the Sons of God or Tower of Babel, and I could go on and on and on. And then there's our passage today. The first time I read this, it sounded to me like it was lifted straight out of Romans. That's what I thought. Like Moses had read Paul. But of course it's the other way around. Paul had read Moses. That's where it came from. And in fact, it might surprise you guys that Deuteronomy comes in only behind the Psalms and Isaiah as the most referenced, alluded to, or quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. It's Psalms, Isaiah, and Deuteronomy. Our passage today is used by Stephen in Acts 7. And it's repeatedly used by Paul in 1 Corinthians and Romans and elsewhere. So I want us to see if we can figure out why these guys like this passage so much, why it was so important. And as we do, I want us to notice three things. Israelite rebellion, the grace of God, and the right response to God's grace. So the first thing to notice is the Israelite rebellion behind verse 14. So let's look at verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God, and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Here, Moses shows us that the Israelites are missing something obvious about God. Behold, he says. When he says behold, when Moses says the word behold, he's saying, look. See, pay attention. Don't you get it? Israel, 
or Suffolk. You're missing something obvious about God, and it's right in front of you. Well, what is it the Israelites were missing? Why does Moses have to call the Israelites to behold their God? The answer is simple. They're failing to live in light of the fact that God made everything and it all belongs to him. Heaven, this is what Moses says, heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. This is what they're missing. I want you to think of it this way. This might help. Creation, the Israelites, and us, First Baptist Church in Suffolk, are part of this huge, grand story. The story is a story of God putting creation right. And in this story, God is the director, the producer, and the star. It's God's story. He's the one who gets to call the shots. He's the one... Well, think of it like this. You you know a movie set when they got that big canvas director's chair and it says director in the back and the guy's sitting there with a big bullhorn? Action! That's God. That's his chair. No one else gets to sit in it. He's the director. He calls the shots. This is what the Israelites are missing. This is what they're failing to behold about God. They don't get it. This is why Moses says, pay attention, guys. Behold. Well, the question is, why? Why are the Israelites missing this? The answer is found in our previous chapter. So let's look at Deuteronomy 9, verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. I'm going to read that again. You, this is Israelites, have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. That was over 40 years ago. So Moses calls the Israelites to behold because they're in a posture of rebellion. It's all about me. Instead of a posture of beholding where it's all about God. That's where we're at. Now, don't we sometimes, as Christians, live in rebellion to God? Maybe we value our routine and see God's will for us as an interruption. Maybe we value our comfort and see God's call on us to suffer with Christ as optional. I don't want to suffer. Or, as we're about to see, maybe we value our time more than we value God. So let's look at a specific example of Israelite rebellion, and it's found in Exodus 32.1. It's just the first part, and it says this. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. It wasn't to celebrate. See what they said. Come on, they said. Make us some gods who can lead us. These folks are nuts. 
They tossed God. Here's the director's chair. God in it. They tossed God out of the director's chair. And now they're trying to call the shots. Action. Do what we want, God. We can't wait for God and his Moses. Where's he been? He went up on some mountain. I haven't seen him in forever. Their impatience. I want you to consider this for a second. Impatience leads to rebellion against God. Who here is impatient? Who here is impatient with God? It's almost the same thing. I could confess a great deal of impatience about my commuting habits or being stuck behind people on a golf course, but I won't. Okay. So, can you imagine witnessing the wondrous works of God during the Exodus and the wilderness years? Things like the parting of the Red Sea, giving of the law, the manna, the pillar of clouds and fire, all that cool stuff, and then failing to honor the God that brought that. Failing to give Him the honor He's due. And here, it's because of impatience. Mm. This is precisely the kind of rebellion that leads to failing to behold God, failing to pay attention. This is the kind of rebellion that kicks him out the director's chair and we try to sit in it in his place. And this is why Moses calls the Israelites to behold. They don't see the obvious here because they're blinded by rebellion. And listen to this. People in rebellion from their God cannot behold their God. Where do you want to be? In rebellion or beholding? And the horrible effect of this is that instead of eagerly participating in that story we talked about, God's putting creation right, the Israelites would rather defy God's authority and make God's story their story. Make it all about them and live it on their terms. That's what happens. So just one verse in, we got a problem. God is the creator. Everything belongs to him, even the story. But Israel is rebellious. They want to call all the shots in God's story. So what's God's response to this problem, to this rebellion? It's the same response he gave to us in sending his son. Grace. Grace is God's response. So secondly then, let's notice the grace of God in verse 15. Look at this first word. Yet. The Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You, above all peoples, as you are this day. And how are they this day? Rebellious. See, Moses tells the Israelites here that even though God is the creator of the universe and owns everything, and even though compared to that, you Israelites 
us Suffolk are merely creatures and own nothing. And even though you fail to behold God and live in rebellion, in spite of all these things, you, Israel, you, the church, are still privileged to participate in God's story of putting creation right. You're still His chosen people. Now, why would God see fit to show so much grace, so much unmerited favor to a bunch of rebels? Let's look at Deuteronomy 7 for our answer. It's verse 8, first part of verse 8. It says this, but, I love buts in Scripture. Often it's good news. It is because the Lord loves you. We sang about that this morning. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It had nothing to do with him. It was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Moses says the reason that God shows grace to a rebellious Israel is because he loves them. And he's a promise keeper. Amen. We wouldn't be here if God was not like that. And God hasn't changed, by the way. What does John 3.16 say? For God what? So loved the world that he sent his son. And then Adam mentioned this earlier. In 1 John, John says this, we loved because he first loved us. God hasn't changed. God shows grace to us and to the Israelites because he loves us. And Moses says that God shows grace because he is faithful, God is, faithful to his promises. You see, God made a promise, a covenant with Abraham to bless the nations, that's us, Gentiles, through Israel. And Paul has something awesome to say about this promise. So look with me at Galatians 3.16. Paul says this, Now, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. That's what Moses was just talking about. Why God shows grace. Then he says this. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus Christ is the promise. Jesus Christ is the reason. Listen to this. This is why the Old Testament is so cool. Because it knows this. Jesus Christ is the reason why God is faithful to his rebels. The Father is going to raise up Jesus Christ from them. That's what he does. That's why he's faithful. So even though the Israelites don't deserve it, God sets his heart. 
God, the word literally means attaches his heart to them. And he does so in love and faithfulness. I mean, this is grace, right? God's love of the rebel. God's faithfulness to the rebel. Is that you? Has God shown that to you in Christ? Are you a faithless rebel to whom God sent his son? Amen. Right? So, how should the people of God respond to the grace of God? So the third thing to notice is the right response to grace in verses 16 through 17. So let's look at that. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. So the Israelites' hearts have a certain posture. We've seen that. It's a posture of stubborn rebellion. Or Stephen says in Acts 7, when he refers back to this verse, he's talking to the Israelites and he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. See, Moses pleads them like Stephen did to have a posture of humble submission, to submit. He says, circumcise your heart. Be no longer stubborn. Moses wants the Israelites to get out of that director's chair, to stop yelling out from right here, action, do what we want. Moses, you're taking too long. And to humbly participate in God's story, because it's his, And on his terms, that's the hard part. He wants them to properly behold their God and to do so in submission. But, here's the but. Who has the power to soften the stubborn, rebellious heart of the rebel Israelites? of the rebel Christians. He says in verse 17, the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, the mighty God, the awesome God. And Paul agrees. Apostle Paul, he alludes to Moses' words in Romans 2, 29. He just says this. He says, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Now, to me, this is super cool. That Moses teaches about the need for a new heart 1,400 years before the New Testament. Now, it's a total myth that every Jew thought salvation was by works. That is baloney. Many of them knew Salvation was by faith from a new heart. We can't forget that. It's right here. That's why when I first saw this, it's like, this is New Testament stuff. Anyway, I thought it was cool. All right, 
So I want, to look, I want us to look at what Isaiah says about how the mighty God will soften a stubborn heart. And it's in Isaiah 40, 10 through 11. He says this. Behold. Well, that sounds familiar. Look, pay attention. The Lord God comes with might. And his arm rules for him. Behold. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. I love how this text from Isaiah contrasts God's might and his power with his gentleness. The power of the great, the mighty, the awesome, the God of gods, the Lord of lords will come with the tenderness of a loving shepherd. Isaiah says, a shepherd who will gently lead. So who is the shepherd that gathers the lambs? Jesus, the promised offspring, the promise made to Abraham. All right. So this is where it gets really good. What this means now is that to behold God is to behold who? Jesus Christ. To participate in God's story of putting creation right is to submit to Jesus Christ. To respond to God's grace is to respond to who? Jesus Christ. It's the, always the right Sunday school answer. You get a gold star every time. But likewise, okay, to rebel against God's story and live it on your terms is to rebel against the loving shepherd who's gently leading. It's to rebel against who? Jesus Christ. So are we like the Israelites, unable to behold our God because of rebellion? Do we make God's story of putting creation right all us? I want us to be on the lookout for three symptoms that reveal we're making God's story all about us. Three symptoms that reveal that we would rather defy God's authority than humbly participate in His story on His terms. The first symptom is a selfish view of sin. So search your heart with these as we go through these. So in the grand scheme of things, do you think your sin is small and inconsequential? Do you think, this is harder, do you think it's only your business? A private and personal thing? Something that exists only in your little personal universe you've made? In God's story, your sin is anything but small and inconsequential. 
Listen to King David's attitude toward his sin. I'm going to read this to you. He says this in Psalm 51. He says, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Your sin is cosmic in size. The shock waves of your sin reach all the way to God. Well beyond your personal universe. Oh, it's nobody else's business. It's just mine. I mean, this is why the solution to your sin has to be cosmic in size. God himself coming to earth. So if you downplay the size of your sin, you're making God's story all about you. That's the first symptom. The second symptom is a self-centered relationship with the Bible. What are you trying to accomplish when you read God's Word or hear a sermon or participate in a Sunday school lesson? What's your first instinct? Let me throw out some possibilities. Is it to think, uh, well, give me something I can use, Um, something that will make my life better or easier? Just don't stretch me too much. Don't change me too much. Don't challenge me too much or make me uncomfortable. And certainly, right, don't make me think too much. I'm not here for that. Or do you ask, what does this text teach about the mighty an awesome God I'm seeking to behold. What does it tell me about what He's done, what He's doing, and what He's going to do? And how can I participate in all that on His terms? I mean, here's the thing, right? To properly behold your God, you have to know Him. And how do we do that? We have to dive into Scripture and leave our selfishness behind. We need a deep love and affection for Him, an intimate knowledge of Him. And the Bible, with the Holy Spirit, is what does that. So, if your love and affection for God is found only in what He does for you, makes me happy, And who he is? He sang some songs this morning were awesome because they what they did was they just talked about who God was. That should bring us immense joy, right? But if you're bringing to your Bible that selfish view where it's just all about you, then you're not reading your Bible correctly. And you may be making God's story, your story, too much about you. That was the second symptom. The third symptom is a self-centered prayer life. All right, so pastor and author Brian Zahn just hit me straight between the eyes with this insight. It should be up there, so I'm going to read it to you, and you can follow along. We 
are endlessly tempted to place prayer in the uniquely modern category of self-help. But true prayer is no such thing. Prayer is not a technique for making our lives better. And as long as we control the agenda, prayer will be seen as a means of manipulating omnipotence to our advantage, which is a fair description of idolatry. We make a huge mistake when we see prayer as a technique for getting God to do what we want Him to do, to get God to do what we think God ought to do. Let me ask you something. Is your prayer life only a form of God management? Think about that. That's your liturgy, right? What you pray. How do you pray every day? Is it God management? Is it a list of demands, right? Is it a sugar-coated and veiled, you know, when we're praying, we're doing something cool, right? So we see it as, it's kind of a way to sugarcoat and veil our selfish demands because we're praying. Is that your prayer life, you know, telling God to do things like that? Or is your prayer life saturated with a love and awe and amazement for who he is? Remember, you have to know who he is to pray like that, and you've got to go into your Bible for that. I mean, is your prayer life directed toward who he is, what he's done for you? That God who shows us the grace and the faithfulness and the love. Because, in fact, that kind of prayer will soften a stubborn heart because you're directing your attention away from you and onto the person who deserves it, God. And you're beholding Him. And in that is freedom. When you forget about beholding yourself and you behold God, you have freedom. This is what Moses wanted from the Israelites. So I want you to listen to this really short but awesome prayer from an ancient Jewish prayer book which everybody should have. It's the Psalms. And it's part of Psalm 95. Also, a hymn book, by the way. They sang their prayers, a lot of them. So I'm just going to read a few verses. So just listen. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. If your prayer life doesn't have some of that in it, you're probably making... God's story, your story, and too much about yourself. You need some of that in your prayer life. All right, so I'm going to close with this exhortation. To the Christian, are you in rebellion, unable to behold your God? Is life 
Just think about those three symptoms. Is your life too much about you and not enough about God? Are you not properly beholding your God? I mean, I say to you what Moses says, Behold! Be no longer stubborn. And to those of you who have never submitted to Christ as Lord and Savior, God's story of putting creation right is an awesome, beautiful story. One in which God is overthrowing the power of sin, death, war, violence, hypocrisy, cancer, and you're invited to participate in this story. But you can only do so by repenting of your sin and submitting to Christ. You enter God's story, that awesome, beautiful story, only through Christ. So I want to ask you if you do that in your life. Let's pray. Father God, maker of everything, owner of everything, God of grace, God of love, and God of faithfulness, we ask you today to gather us into the arms of Christ and to gently lead us into humble submission, Lord, to take ourselves off the director's chair and to install you back into your throne in our lives because it's your story, Lord. And more than that, we ask that you would break our hearts, Father, of wanting to run the show that we would submit to you on your terms. That we would sacrifice our comfort when need be. That we would sacrifice our routine when need be. Because we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. 
Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father when you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.